The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. Today, we bring you part two of a two-part interview with Charles E. Gannon about his latest Cain Riordan novel, Endangered Species. The interview was conducted by Sean Patrick Hazlett. Let's take a listen. When they're looking at the different races and cultures, they're always trying to bring in some sort of crude analogy, right? They're like Neanderthals, but they have sharper features. And, you know, these look like modern humans, these, this, this, and this, right? Which I thought was also interesting because they're, yeah, they're they're coming in with these assumptions and a lot of these assumptions turn out to be, you know, dangerous, even coming in, right? With the wind patterns and things like that. Yep. And the, you know, there's there's weather patterns that they weren't even expecting. They kind of just, oh yeah, there's that, you know, that thing right behind me, the what? <laughs> like, so you definitely, definitely play with that a lot. And I think it's very useful. Now, in terms of themes, what themes do you uh, try to try to address at this? Sometimes these themes you kind of go in ahead of time and try and try to do it. And some some authors they just naturally emerge from the the story. So where do you stand on that? So I have been in charge of creative writing tracks. Um, I am uh, undergrad, uh, not masters. Um, there there are enough there are. I'm not, I don't want to make anybody who has an MFA in creative writing feel badly, but I, I think that uh, they are they are eternally at um, at risk of abuse is all I'm going to say. Mm -hmm. I think that theme is a useful organizing tool for a new writer. Uh, and there are some writers who need the theme because it becomes the spine. I, I guess I would say that to me, um, I kind of know where I'm going. I kind of know what the, 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 if you will, the point of the journey is. And along the way, um, I don't want to say I discover the theme, but uh, I think being overly deterministic about it can make a story begin to feel artificial. It feels mm -hmm. like the, the story is serving a master other than the natural course of events now that's that then we get into the difference between the real and verisimilitude and and you know the ulysses by james joyce is famous for being one of the few times that a, an extended period of time using the lavatory is actually part of the action um <laughs> make of this what you will um I, I, I think that's an example where, where I, I understand what Joyce was doing, which was talking about fundamentally at the bottom, underneath everything else, he's talking about the artifice and narrative. Narrative, mm -hmm. we, we cut in a, in a story, we cut a lot of life out. We go for the high points, the points that move the story along, and that creates more of, books have more far more narrative cohesion than life. We have to right. sort of almost back our way into narrative cohesion of life, but, um, but all that being said, I have an idea of where I'm going. I know who the characters are. I know the problems they're going to face. And the theme ultimately becomes when characters 
that I know face problems, the theme is going to arise from their reaction to and solving of those problems because how they react to them is going to to some degree influence the way they solve them and of course in the case of in the case of this planet one of the major themes is they're the page they have to take from the local book i think everybody thought the cane riordan novels were going to be clean all the way through you know as he was he was going to be he was going to be able to stay a boy scout at some level not that he had mm -hmm. but in a lot of ways he had i always knew this moment was coming he also couldn't have survived this moment if he had been dropped into this in book one. And there is no way to compact the kind of experience he needed, the slow erosion of thinking that you can always save everybody, that you can make things come mm -hmm. out all right. Because if you think about the arc of this, most heroic journeys show increasing competence and increasing success in the course of a hero. Here you have increasing competence, yes, but you have decreasing success in terms of the numbers of lives saved. You know, what, is it, what does it look like compared to what one could have hoped for? And this planet is as pitiless as an environment. I would say it is difficult to create an environment that is both disbelievable because it all does hang together. It isn't Dune. Mm -hmm. Um, it all does hang together, but man, it's not friendly. And I won't go into why it's not friendly, um, why lichen is here, why unicellular organisms are here, why camphor is here, why tubers are here. But when you get to about the 80% part of the book, you're going to get the same sort of aha moment that he gets. And they realize why this planet is so barren. And it's, um, it's, it's not it the it is not a doom reason. It is a lot more about biota. It is a lot more about again things we just wouldn't assume could happen, but here they have or were made to happen, as the case may be. And so, um, so I, I I guess we were still talking about themes, and the theme was, what do you do? What do humans do when they're put up against this? And they mm -hmm. actually have. They have a kind of cushy because for all the fact that they don't get to bring a whole lot down with them, that's still a whole hell of a lot more than the locals have. They are, as a matter of fact, they are, they're talk about mistaken identities. I mean, the amount of power that they wield in certain circumstances briefly is out of all, out of all proportion to what would be considered a reasonable uh, relationship between you know what you would uh, what you would expend and what you would save given the value of a of an objective um i don't know that <laughs> so uh so this is a it's a it's a it's a kind of second a grim it's a hopeful yet uh, i guess gritty not grim i don't know that i would call it grim you might maybe many people will i'm speaking to the broad you out there but it is a it is a gritty, it is a very gritty um, coming of age story, and I think it's true. I think there's almost no one who is not in this coming of age to some degree, no matter how old they are, no matter what they've seen. And I think I think your characterization of theme as an emergent property of narrative, I think, is an apt one in terms of 
for writers and 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 I agree that it seems too deterministic if you kind of say I want to write a theme I want to write a book about this theme and I'm going to start writing it because it, it'll feel stilted it'll feel less organic so uh, you know I thought that was particularly interesting so uh, kind of coming to the kind of the end of this book this is not the end of of things for Kane Reardon uh, you mentioned offline you're working on kind of the next chapter any anything you want to talk about overall with the series where you're kind of heading without yes I can I can do that the the book that just got turned in not too long ago and will be out on December 5th is called protected species this is what a shock the species arc and you can kind of get an idea of how things change and this is not just for the group but it's it's broader in terms of the entirety of the series for those who have been reading the series one of the alien races isn't quite so alien after all um and uh, and uh, interestingly enough we find ourselves in opposition to them funny that the first novel is titled fire with fire um but this is the point where a lot of the pieces that have been seen and scattered out over the prior five books um the the way history goes off into the mists and yet there are things that exist that still exist from that time what was going on why did it happen that way how did that leave all of these different species on their current trajectories um uh why why are so many planets and this is touched on numerous times in the series it's not mm. it's it's one thing that you have a lot of planets that are green it's another thing entirely that somebody can get out on and walk on probably almost half of them shirt sleeve that's just wrong um and and it suggests in the same way that the ship doesn't miss shift and come out as a spray of subatomic particles that something has been afoot here for a very long time and sometimes you have to go way the hell far away from home to get a good view of what home is and that is certainly one of the things that's happening here um i think one of the other things the the next two books in the series after protected species because it's a four book mm -hmm. arc are killer species and dominant species knowing how those words are sometimes used in the in the series particularly dominant and dominion um might give re devoted readers a little bit of a is he really going there and the answer is yeah probably um and it by the end of that we're going to be set up for uh, a situation where too many people know too much for the the piece of mutual ignorance to continue there are certain things that are no longer deniable there are certain things that can no longer be kept under the rug and and we've gotten to the point where whether it is a misperception or an accurate perception and it's usually a mix of the two and in this case it is very much a blend of the two um we're encountering that moment where there is no longer a possibility for modus vivendi these there are mutual exclusives that are that have now been mm -hmm. revealed and now acting upon them um decisively 
boldly is, uh, is probably going to become necessary. Um, so the, uh, the next, the next arc after this is called the, uh, is called the Exarch insurgency. And, uh, I won't, I won't say more than that at this time, but suffice it to say that, uh, the Murphy's Lawless series, actually, anybody who's reading the seven, anybody who's even read the sixth book, this book, will have heard that name now. And in the seventh book, we'll have seen and heard a bunch of others. And in the eighth book, that arc, that circuit will close. Um, and uh, people who said, ah, oh, that's just a side series. No, no, not at all. Because just as this is a very unusual place, 55 Tori, which is the binary system, again, represented as best as our current astronomy allows us to do, mm -hmm. 151 point some odd light years. Um, that system as well is not happenstance, um, what they find there. And um, it's putting these things together where no one has been for a while, which creates the, um, uh, which, which creates some of the drama. Uh, the the learning the past is determining the present, which I find uh, a compelling uh, and therefore uh, charting the future in a way uh, is is for me something I've always wanted to do. And one of the things that that you know, if I was going to zoom back and say, what is my my uber objective here? Mm -hmm. We start out we start out in the first book in twenty one oh five. We do not have interstellar capability, although we're working on it. That at we don't, most people don't know it. That's how Kane actually gets stuck in cold sleep, which is also pretty new as it turns out. Um, and he wakes up and we have interstellar 13 years later, and we do have interstellar uh, capability, very, very rare. Um, and we think we've found ruins. And if you were to take a look at what each book introduces, it's like peeling back onion. And as you do, there's more of a sense, I hope, people, yeah, you want to see the next thing, but I would urge my readers to look over your shoulder every once in a while. Remember mm -hmm. where you started. It's going to seem like a long time because it's taken six books to get here, and these are not light tomes. You know, anyone, several of them could easily stand in as a murder weapon in, in most domestic disputes. Um, but... Uh, but if you think that this book, I believe this book is taking place in 2125. The first book, uh, we, we really see him again in 2018, 2118. So it's mm -hmm. only been seven to eight years. We have gone from, we don't have, you know, we just, so he wakes up and it's very, very early days of interstellar travel. And maybe there are exosapiens. Uh, now we know there are, now we know that they were around 7,000 years ago. Now we know that there were apparently humans shaped ruins shaped for that were building shaped for humans on a star Delta Pavan, on a planet Delta Pavanus three, some 21, 22 odd light years away. It might only be 19. I forget. Um, I'm not going to reach in. I'm not, I'm not going to do the total nerd thing and reach for the, uh, for the, the, the the various references I'm, I'm sure i'm sure your fans will forgive you forgive yeah, yeah. grievous grievous mistake ones if you had a chat line going on with this they'd be saying well, um with but, love uh, with love they'd be saying with love. With love. absolutely absolutely because they know that i care about about being accountable uh very closely accountable um 
and uh, if you turn your if you and you consider the number of technologies that that earth has come across that it has now i mean we're the we're the reverse engineer we're making the monkey copies you know we we like to we like to we like to look down in historically on people who make monkey copies of other things guess what the monkeys are copying which is kind of one of the lessons i'm trying to suggest here that you know our dominant narratives in this world are largely created by what a shock what have been at this historical you know moment the dominant nations mm -hmm. but if we find ourselves out there and unless whatever is out there has has passed away or passed on uh, we're not going to be at the top of the food chain and we'd better be good monkey copiers and and at the same time when you're doing it in urgency because there's there is a war there's two more incidents that narrowly avert war and now mm -hmm. we're here how much longer can it be if you don't catch up you become a footnote to history and it's only been seven or eight years in the series what i'm trying to say is i'm sure it feels like a long time people have been reading the series since it came out in 20 i think the first it was except 2012 2013 so it's 11 mm -hmm. years 11 12 years but in terms of actually how much time has gone on historically in the novels this is very fast and i did not want to do an ian banks culture series i did not i did not want to do what what asimov did in foundation i did not want to mm -hmm. break a story into multiple carry characters over a variety of centuries because there's an issue with that as far as i'm concerned which is that in the first place when you see it through a number of familiar lenses you get a kind of arc it's it's not the zoom out arc right from uh, you know the the reader is now being allowed to skim over the land fly you know fly breed you know fly over continents in a few hours of you know so huge amounts of, of history and significance no you're along for the ride you're in the you're mm -hmm. in, in the passenger seat on this you get to see it through a very well-known uh point of view and not just one uh downing is a very important point of view you also get mm -hmm. a number of the exosapiens who have very important points of view i mean just watching the differences amongst the dornani tell you that they have seen and known and have a perspective on what's going on that is very, very different from us. And part of that is because of their relationship with time, but part of it is the relationship with where they are in their historic arc, which is the fading mm -hmm. years. And they're desperate to pass the can the, the light in the on to somebody else they can trust. You know, that is one of their primary motivators. And and for me, I'm trying to make this as believable as I can in what is such a what is really a very very brief historical moment all that said go to main street america circa 1938 and go to main street america 20 years later 1958 then jump another 20 years when change comes when the change is technological and revolutionary and you have inflection points piling one up on top of another so it doesn't even look like plateaus. It looks like a wrap, you know, like an asymptotic staircase is being built. Um, I'm not so sure that we wouldn't have to act that quickly in any kind of similar situation. Just so no one thinks that I, I think I'm predicting the future. I think science fiction predicting the future 
is a very, very, um, I, I would counsel anybody to consider that claim very carefully. But I think projection is always useful. Projection means to me, I don't have a vested interest in, you know, the universe, a friend of mine uh, now departed, great science fiction writer, Ben Bova, once said, mm -hmm. if you want to make sure the future doesn't take place, just write a story, science fiction about it, just a science fiction story about it. That, then you know that future will not occur. Um, and I think he's right. Um, so why do we do it? Well, for the same reason you make plans, right? Anybody who makes plans, particularly people who go into crises like the military, like the EMT, like EMT, like folks like that, pilots, you are never going to get what happens in the simulator. But having been in the simulator right. and having no, known that you can extract enough order from the chaos to influence outcomes in the way you would like, or at least optimize your chances of doing so, that's the point of planning. And to me, that's the point of projection. So this is, this is because you could write, you could take these novels and remove all the alien species. And I would say, so you set it 400 years in the future and you make all the alien species transhuman. Mm -hmm. you'd, you'd find, and if you then back up and you take a look at their different social, social patterns, it's not too different from what we saw in the new world. In, in the sense of, you know, particularly religious groups coming here and they wanted to, they were going to use the new world to create their vision. Uh, certainly that's what was done in social politics, socialist politics, communism in, in, in Europe in the 1890s. There is, there is nothing that you will find in the alien species that cannot be, I would say, understood as an extremely purified and concentrated version of a certain kind of human perception of how society might be organized. Except for that, it also kind of suggests you have to, for that to work, you know, for the, these, these perfect societies, whatever they are, requires an organism that is deeply adapted to them. And at that point, would we recognize that organism really, even if it looked and walked like us, would we recognize it as human anymore? Points to ponder. Why I write this stuff. So many, so many thoughts about what you just said, because it applies to us now. When you're talking about this, call it punctuated equilibria or this acceleration of knowledge, right now we're confronting multiple problems, or I shouldn't say multiple problems, but multiple cultural phenomena, multiple technologies, all at once, very rapidly. Yeah. So you have the emergence of AI, right? Which, you know, is, growth, is kind of an exponential learning curve where before we know it, next thing we know, it's like a, it spreads the way a virus spreads in the sense mm -hmm. that it just grows and multiplies. And, and before you know it, everybody has it, right? Uh, but it, you know, the rate at which its intelligence will grow is, you know, authors have talked about, singularity the same time you have crispr technology right you had a chinese scientist you know illegally kind of do something with it in 2018 but at what point is there going to be an arms race that develops there with having the you know more intelligent humans right or even an entirely different species to the points in your your book we're not we might not be that far from that transhumanism as you mentioned another 
huge thing that's going on. It's it's manifesting itself in different ways now, but that's, you know, w- without saying what's going on in schools and things like that, mm-hmm. that's kind of the first part of transhumanism in terms of just altering humans to get certain, get certain outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in a, you know, cyborg-like or uh, unnatural way versus a quote-unquote natural way with CRISPR. So, you have the democratization of information with the internet, right? Which is causing all sorts of chaos for, I'd say it's probably the biggest threat to nation states since they were established with the peace of Westphalia, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of a lot of things that are kind of coming at us relatively yeah. quickly where I think your book nicely captures many of those things in a different way, in a way that's less um, in your face, right? I think a more thoughtful way but when you were writing this had you expected us to kind of be kind of in this in this interesting time in history may we live in these interesting times as i kind of i kind of felt i was already in it i mean you know as as, so i'm i'm 63 and i have uh you know no one had walked on the moon when i was when i was born now we can't we couldn't find a reason to go back until guess what? Somebody else was going to do it again. So, well, I guess it's a piece of real estate. We need to be there too, which by the way, is kind of why I, when we go interstellar, however we do it, I think it's going to be, it's going to be the same sort of motivation. You know, first it's greed. If greed doesn't work out, however, uh, the idea of going someplace where somebody else isn't always has a certain military and diplomatic and strategic advantage. And I think once mm-hmm. somebody does, somebody else is going to do the same thing. Um, and those who don't, we, we you don't hear about them because they generally tend not to survive that particular historic episode um so was this in my mind yeah it, it very much is uh particularly the idea of the way that you can you can translate these quote aliens into a variety of of you don't need aliens you can like i said you can just go far enough not too far away on the transhumanist scale. I mean, we don't talk about, for instance, Brave New World as transhumanism, but Brave New World mm-hmm. is transhumanism. We, we, have, we have humans that have been stunted, shaped in different ways to perform certain tasks, and not just in terms of their, their physiology, but in terms of their, they, you know, we're talking about the equivalent of mentally restricted creatures in mm-hmm. many cases. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, the, one of the things, for instance, that hasn't come out much in this, but comes out more later on and starts coming out, as a matter of fact, in these novels is that there's uh, that showed up in a novelette that I wrote called um, A Taste of Ashes, which was in mm-hmm. Infinite Stars. Um, and it deals with what Trevor Corcoran experiences after the invasion of Earth in, uh, in 2019, 2020. And... Um, what we learn is that bigotry of one of the things about the series and people say, well, you're not, you know, you're not concerned with, with the issues of the day. I'm, I'm concerned with the issues that are, I think might be, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, what, so I've, I've taught African-American literature and, and felt uncomfortable doing so because there was no, there was no person in the department at that time who could or would. And it was the choice between do I essentially engage in some appropriation here 
but at least this stuff gets, you know, these kids or young adults who wouldn't otherwise get it and hadn't gotten it. This was the, the reason that I bring this up is that um, you have to be willing to say that one of the things that anybody who's known that literature, the issues in front of us now regarding race, regarding sexual choice, all of these things, I can't, if we are still at the same place a century from now with those, there's a much, much, a much, much gr more grim book that would be right, written about that. Because if you don't make progress on those sort of things in a century, you're in deep trouble. Now, there are cultures which, of course, existed for many, many, many centuries with very little change in that. But as you were saying earlier, we don't have all the sort of dynamic, powerful variables. And a lot of those cultures were very much, they were code oriented. The, the, the value and the identity of the individual was drawn from society, not the other way around. In a pluralist state, these things are going to, they have to be responded to, or we're not pluralist anymore. Even if we're not passing right. laws against it, then there are so there are essentially unwritten social laws which would be stultifying the answer to these to these questions. So there is bigotry in the future. It's not bigotry about this. And people say, "Oh, well, we don't see it because you haven't seen it yet." Because unfortunately, although Dora Veridin is a very important character in the series, because she's the voice of the of the still dis disenfranchised world. And in that story I was talking about, that novelette, The Taste of Ashes, we learn that the person who's been allowed on as a uh, the bridge of a ship chasing down the last Arat Corps military ship out of human space had to give up her cybernetic eye before she went on board. Why does she have a cybernetic eye? Because there are three ways that you can sort of, you can either be unmodified you can have the, the wealthy nations can do what's called a, a Gattaca pass, which is that it's the, the, the wonderful thing about Gattaca is that you have evolution on your side. You're just giving it a thousand chances and you pick the one you want. That's, right. but it's also expensive. CRISPR can go in late in the process and do a whole lot of fixing. Problem is like most things mechanistic done on the fly, if you will, no matter how well understood, we still understand how all the epigenetics come together. We don't exactly know when we're if we're cutting cables or not because we don't we haven't right. we haven't played that out yet. But what if you come from a nation that is has been tragically and perpetually uh, without resources? to do either one of those things well the answer except you can't afford it but who can afford it is someone who says i'll give you that eye i'll give you that arm i'll give you that heart but you know what uh you have to pay me back and i get to tell you how and when you pay me back and if anybody was stupid enough to think that they haven't put a backdoor code in there then they probably deserve to die. Uh, but but there's something that happens in 2083 called the epidemic, EMP, epidemic, because this sort of thing comes to a head and between focused electronic, uh, electromagnetic pulse disruptions and and software, you know, a lot of people die. And But more, more to the point, a lot of people are corrupted. And so what do you get? 
you get people in the more developed countries perpetually fearful of those from the, those. They know that poverty makes people do desperate things and therefore makes those impoverished people risky. And the terrible thing is it's largely, and this is it's largely the same places in the world that we didn't manage to, to get some kind of better equity in place. Because when people aren't happy, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna keep coming at you. Just take different form. Well, even even if you have CRISPR, right? And let's say you develop it, you're gonna have the haves and have nots. And what you're gonna do potentially right. is create a cycle where you have literally a de facto caste system where one yep. species of human, right, is just an underclass and just can't possibly compete because they don't have the money to make these enhancements. And then it just feeds upon itself because in any society that you see, even in a merit-based society, once the you know people get to the top, they kind of start pulling up ladders and start making, again, I'm not saying that's you know the case in, in all instances, but that tends to be what humanity has done over and over, whether or not it's by birth, they have power or by economics, by the political system chooses people based on whatever whatever characteristic they have. So anyway, that's that's one aspect of humanity that uh, it's going to be difficult to change in the long run. Anyway, any any uh, wisdom, final wisdom for your fans? If you're interested, first of all, thank you. <laughs> uh, you make it possible for me to have the coolest job in the world, and I, I literally mean that. Um, for me, this is what I always wanted to do. I knew it, I knew I wanted to do this before I knew that you could do this. Um, and uh, I, I would say that it is always good to keep asking questions. Um, there's very little that's certain in this world. And I think that makes it very easy for us to therefore want certainty. And therefore, to some extent, I think that that hunger for certainty actually makes it, it makes it more likely for us to cling to things that look like they might be. And I would encourage anyone, my readers, anyone, to not give in to that temptation. Uh, it's more important than ever. The harder it gets to ask the questions, the more it makes us feel perhaps disoriented, the more we feel perhaps rootless in a world that is no longer as well-rooted as it used to be, the more important it is to ask the questions and to maintain an open mind about the answers. Um, more than that, uh, all I'll say is, I hope you, I hope you buy protected species and, and stay along for the ride. Uh, whatever else it may have, I will try not to make it boring and I will try not to make it fluff. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Gannon. And for those who have not read the book, shame on you. You can find it at anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and anywhere else. And the BAME website as well. So thank you again, Dr. Gannon. It was a thank pleasure. Thank you so much, Sean. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynne Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. 
Tinker finds herself taking on the Elven Court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. Nathan double-parked his Buick by the payphone 20 minutes later. I've been worried sick about you, he called as he climbed out. I'm sorry I had to leave you with that mess. The accident was unreal, and I was stuck there all night. By the time I got free, you had yanked your trailer and were gone. It's okay, she waved it away. I had oil can and Lane to help me. You're here now. Lane, of course. He surprised her by hugging her. What, was everyone suddenly touchy-feely? How's your hand? She showed it to him, flexing it. It got infected. He dwarfed her left hand in his and eyed it with deep sorrow. Ah, oh, Tinker, I'm so sorry. It's fine now. They fixed it at the hospice. She wiggled her fingers in a show of health. She pulled her hand free. I heard about your accident. You okay? My accident? Veterans Bridge, she prompted, heading for his car and its air-conditioned interior. Oh, yeah. Nathan needed more coolant in his Buick. The air conditioner struggled against the sticky summer heat. Tinker redirected the passenger vents to blow on her and unbuttoned her shirt above and below her bra line in an attempt to cool down. So, what happened? She asked. Mass chaos is what happened. Nathan shook his head. Shut down traffic is usually so bumper to bumper you don't get much more than fender benders. The screw in a rider truck misses their turn, and they miss it big time getting like halfway across the Veterans Bridge before realizing that they either wanted the Fort Duquesne Bridge to the Fort Pitt Tunnels or simply to get off at the North Shore. Who knows? Either one they could have gotten to by cutting through downtown. Instead, they try to back up. Of course, they can't. Everything bumper to bumper for 10 miles. They block traffic for like half an hour trying to bully the drivers for a couple hundred feet behind them into backing up but those people don't have anywhere to go. Meanwhile, all the traffic in front of them clears out. Let me guess. Once they stop blocking traffic, everyone races across the bridge trying to get in front of the jerks. Oh, yeah, Nathan said. Only the rider truck is still lost. He's in the left-hand lane and realizes either he's going to end up back at the rim in a border patrol check or through the Liberty Tunnel and into the South Hills. And they're sitting on a truck full of illegal goods. So the rim is out. Nathan glanced at her sharply. How do you know they were smuggling? Maynard wanted me to look over their stuff. He told me a little about the accident. I was worried about you. Really? The info seemed to please him greatly. I'm fine. I was the first unit called, but by the time I worked my way around to the accident, the EIA and most of the cops in Pittsburgh were there. Good. So, go on. They tried to take the 6th Avenue exit and cut through town. Yeah, only they did it at the last minute and cut off a Peterbilt fully loaded with steel girders and just getting up to full speed. Bad move. The Peterbilt tries, but he can't stop. Not with the load he's carrying. 
He catches the rider in the back driver corner and rams them into the support beams for the overpass. His load comes off and crushes a minivan beside him, killing the two people inside instantly. She recalled the flattened car. Oh my. There's a pileup, cars everywhere, and of course the police are called and things start to escalate. The goons from the rider truck discovered that they couldn't free their driver and that their truck was totaled. They carjack a pickup truck and unload the rider into it. While they're doing that, I start working my way across the veterans' bridge. And that's when they get their guns out. Maynard says they shot their own driver, flung a Volkswagen off the bridge, and tried to blow things up with C4. Nathan nodded. Even with the traffic snarled, they managed to get away just by the sheer mess they left behind. It blocked everyone from chasing after them. Tinker told Nathan of her run-in with the fake EIA agents. He swore softly. It certainly sounds like them. If I'd known there was any chance you'd get mixed up with them, I would have tracked you down yesterday. Uh, I dealt with them. Knowing that they had coldly killed one of their own made her encounter, in hindsight, more chilling. Nathan shook his head. That's my tank. That was another installment in Win Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judgewitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Charles E. Gannon, and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.